Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Maria Strauss is a partner at the law firm Farrer & Co, which is farrer.co.uk. Maria advises schools, faith-based organisations, charities and sports clubs on employment law and safeguarding, dealing with everything from steering clients through major crises or representing their interests in public inquiries to handling one-off cases and day-to-day advice. Maria thrives on the challenge of managing large cases and projects representing clients in the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court on Employment Law, advising clients who might be in the midst of a major child protection crisis with regulatory and reputational consequences. Maria is recognized for her ability to really get to know her clients' businesses, allowing her to build long-lasting relationships with organizations across the education and faith-based sectors and faith-based and faith-based sectors. Maria qualified as a solicitor in 2008. Welcome, Maria. How are you? Very well, Cathy. Thanks. Well, we're really privileged to have you today. Normally on this podcast, we're interviewing researchers and academics, but it's a real treat to have a lawyer joining us on the podcast. And I have to say, I have been so impressed by so many of the reports that are available on your uh, law page for your firm and that I just wanted to tell school leaders about it, talk about the fantastic summary reports that you do across a whole host of areas that are so impressive and clear. And I think I just wanted to start the discussion with some of the work around what many people in schools will recognize that the, the movement called Everyone's Invited. And I think if we start our discussion there, I think everyone listening will know that Everyone's Invited was really a sort of a, a social media campaign to raise awareness of sexual assault and harassment in schools and rape culture in schools. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Maria, but it's, I think there's about 51,000 testimonies have been raised by the Everyone's Invited movement. That's right. Well, Kathy, it's really nice to be here. And I'm delighted that you invited me to speak with you on these issues today. And yes, as you say, Everyone's Invited was a movement, a bit like a Me Too movement in schools and universities. And the website and the sort of broader campaign was led by a young woman called Soma Sara. And really, as you say, it's to shine a spotlight on the significant problem of, of sexual harassment, sexual violence between young people, sometimes in schools and, and in school communities, sometimes at universities, and also committed to exposing what it calls a rape culture in society and in schools. 
And of course, placing it in context, I mean, we had the, I think the television series, I May Destroy You, which sort of instigated this dialogue about everyone's invited and kickstarted that movement. We've had the murder of Sarah Everard and several other women that have also raised these issues around violence against women in general. But today we're focusing on that culture within schools and rightly so, schools have been extremely keen to do whatever they can to tackle many of the issues raised by both that report and a subsequent Ofsted report. So let's just talk about the Ofsted report. Thank you, Maria. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and just pausing there, Cathy, before I jump into the Ofsted inquiry, I think it is important to remember that there is a social context. You mentioned one of the TV programs that was really popular last summer. And we know that sexual harassment, sexual violence is not just a school's issue. It's a societal problem. It's happening in every culture and every country on the planet. And I wanted just to tell your audience what the UN say a rape culture is, because that word has been talked about quite a lot. And I think this is quite a helpful definition. The UN say that rape culture is pervasive. It's embedded in the way we think, speak and move in the world. While the context may differ, rape culture is always rooted in patriarchal beliefs, power and control. And rape culture is the social environment that allows sexual violence to be normalised and justified, fueled by gender inequality and attitudes about gender and sexuality. And that every day we all have the opportunity to examine our own behaviours and beliefs for biases that might permit a rape culture to continue. So I think that's a helpful definition. But then to narrow it down more to schools. And as you say, very much in March, this was a movement that greatly impacted schools. The media were in particular very interested in well-known independent and state schools, particularly in London. There was a lot of coverage and news stories. And off the back of that, Ofsted announced a review. And I think they chose about 30 schools in the end and did quite a rapid review. But in fact, they spoke to a lot of people. They did focus groups, pupils, teachers, and so on. And from there, provided really quite a a comprehensive overview of a number of sort of interlinking issues really that were going on that was seemingly allowing sexual harassment to occur in schools. And one of the biggest points really that stuck out for me was they said that the quality of relationships and sex education was just not good enough. Young people were telling them it wasn't equipping them for the reality of their lives. It was too little, too late teachers were delivering it when they really didn't feel they had the training or the interest to deliver it. It wasn't being quality assured. Schools weren't testing whether it was working. It wasn't dealing with online behaviours. So that was a really big point from the Ofsted review. The second point was was this idea that came through from the report to me, which was that there was this inconsistent knowledge in schools, you know, between different teachers about what actually constitutes harmful sexual behaviour. And I've seen this in some of the cases. So, for example, 
you know, one teacher, maybe in a maths class, for example, might think it's just a joke, would be picked up by another teacher as actually sexual sexual harassment and reported through the right channels to the DSL to be dealt with. So the Ofsted inquiry, it really well, it made a huge number of findings and recommendations and the scale of girls that were being, you know, harassed and boys getting sent graphic images they didn't want to see. And so on was really, well, it really makes for eye-opening reading. But of course, prior to the Ofsted report, some years ago, I think in 2016, there had been statistics published about the levels of sexual harassment and abuse in schools, which made for very troubling reading even then. So it's not really, this shouldn't really be new and it shouldn't really be a surprise for schools. But I think there is definitely a movement towards the desire for change. People have, have, I think the volume of abuse has been really highlighted. And I think everything has come together and I'm hoping there's sort of a continuing momentum to the desire to change things. And everyone has an appetite to learn what they could do better. And that's parents, governors, teachers, head teachers. And, you know, it's fantastic that schools have been asking for that information. But I think it's important to dwell on where we can affect change And I think what I'd like to focus on with you is what schools should and can be doing to respond effectively both to, you know, the Ofsted report and the sort of general societal desire for change. I think that one of the things that has just come out of what you've just said is a general inconsistency in staff training. So some members of staff you know, if, if you stopped a member of staff in the corridor, do they know how to define sexual assault? Do they understand what it looks like? And this, of course, can extend to lots of other issues, you know, to do with racism or discrimination. There's a whole host of issues. But, you know, beginning with what your staff know is very important, isn't it? Absolutely. And and I echo what you say, that there's a desire for change. And I'm sure that's driven by a number of things you know, schools wanting to do the right thing, you know, they are a really important stakeholder in young people's lives, and they have the power to provide a protective environment, and to really help enforce good values in the young people together with the parents. We know that there's going to be and there is, as we speak, a real focus from the regulators Ofsted and the ISI, when it comes to inspection, they're going to be looking very closely at what schools are doing to, you know, address the gaps in RSE and, and ensure things, disclosures and so on are handled properly. So in terms of what I, I think that schools should be doing, could be doing, some are doing, I would say it's all, and we've said this for years in the in the Ferris Safeguarding Unit, it's all about building that safer culture. And a recent report from the UN Women, actually, which was called When Will It End? Affecting Culture Change in the Area of Sexual Harassment. And another even more recent report from the Fawcett Society on Sexual Harassment are excellent starting places, I guess. And they both say basically the same things, that there's a number of areas that all organisations should be doing to try to address this issue. The first one is setting the culture. You know, having a culture where the inappropriate behaviours are detected, where they, and if they're not detected, that people are reporting them, disclosing them to the right 
professionals, right managers, the DSL in the school or a trusted teacher, that there's a sort of zero tolerance approach taken, which doesn't mean that you are instantly sacked or that you're excluded for, for something. It means that there's always a response, a proportionate and appropriate response to a disclosure, be it the inappropriate banter, as it's often called, or something more serious. There's always an appropriate response. Training is critical. Everyone in the school, everyone, from the senior leaders to the, all of the support staff, they should all be able to recognize harmful sexual behaviors, even the low-level behaviors, because they are can be harmful or they may, they may escalate to something more violent, for example. Everyone should be able to recognize them and understand that it's inappropriate and be able to know how to report it and what will be done. So there should be clear policies and procedures around that. They should be implemented, not just sitting on a shelf. Part of creating that safer culture, Cathy, is applying policies and procedures consistently. So it's no good to have different responses, different people, because I don't know, I've heard a range of reasons over the years. You know, well, Bob has been here a long time and he's just a bit like that. And, you know, he'll be retiring in a couple of years, so we aren't going to do anything about it or you know, we're just this, you know, child is, you know, going to leave in, in a year and we'll just not really apply the policy in the same way someone may be lower down the school, for example. Policies and procedures must be consistently applied because if they're not, that's when people will see the weaknesses in the system. Then they'll think, well, I'll push the boundaries and there's a chance I'll get away with bad behaviour around here. Training, we've talked about the UN paper, which I'm happy to flag to you and perhaps you can link it with this podcast in some way has a fantastic section on training it shouldn't be generic and off the shelf it should be bespoke relevant to the issues in the and the context in the organization the other thing that i think is really important obviously for schools is well making sure that they understand their statutory duties and their legal duties all of them are pretty up on kcsie but I suppose going a bit further than that, do they know how to advocate for children properly at the local authority? It's easy enough to make referrals into children's services and the like, but actually, do they know how to escalate those concerns and really um, make sure that, you know, the children in their care are getting the right support and interventions from the local authority? Another area, Cathy, I suppose, that I would almost close the answer on is carrying out investigations into issues this is an area i feel that schools could do some work in i guess in terms of ensuring that they where they are left having to investigate where it's not something criminal but it's something under the behavior policies that they properly investigate by properly interviewing the children and having reliable evidence and and clear reports and basing their decisions on that and not doing a rush job around that and where it is something potentially criminal ensuring they escalate things with the police the police should be investigating crimes it shouldn't be schools it should be the police but i've seen a lot of cases where schools for one reason or another are investigating stuff that i would be considered to be pretty criminal or borderline criminal and on that note you have created an incredibly helpful document called peer-to-peer abuse or you were involved with that document which 
does help schools understand much more about what that looks like and how to think about it. Well, exactly. So in 2017, I think it was, Farah's launched a peer-on-peer abuse toolkit. And all of that work is being led by my colleague, senior counsellor, Adele Eastman. And that's currently being revised, actually, to take account of, you know, things that we've learned from movements like Black Lives Matter and so on. And I would absolutely encourage schools to review that document and it has now been referenced in DfE in the national guidance as well from the DfE and that talks about you know taking a contextual safeguarding approach so Carleen Furman the leading academic input it into the document you know the contextual safeguarding approach being you know looking at all the layers in a child's life when you're responding to an issue school environment the peer group online, the home environment, uh, and all the many different layers that can have an impact. So yeah, we have been, or rather my colleague has been very much the cutting edge of um, of that subject. And schools should definitely use that guide as a, as a good reference. Now you talk about this safer school culture. I just want to dwell for a moment on sort of how schools might audit how they're actually doing in this regard. So they might think, look, we all get on well, we have a nice environment, there's good relationships between staff and pupils. How do they initiate a sort of a a culture audit, if you like, ahead of future inspections or because they want to make change? So, well, there's lots of precedents for that. And we've seen schools and other organisations indeed doing everything from safeguarding audits to you know safeguarding reviews safe and culture reviews race equality reviews and you can almost you know devise your own model cafe and there's everything from i should say you can devise your own model but really i suppose the more you do in a, in a review or an audit then the better informed the outcome and output is going to be there's everything from you know desktop review of policies and procedures and maybe reviewing feedback from surveys to, you know, getting independent people who are experts in the field of sexual abuse and safeguarding to go in, do things like workshops and focus groups and interviews. The clients and schools that I know that have done that have been glad that they've done it and As one head said to me, you know, we're going to lift up the carpet and look in all the corners, really. We want to know what's going on, you know, on this front. And and the benefit of doing, you know, something more something more intensive, like a culture review that where there's interviews with people and surveys that, you know, you get lots of feedback from and focus groups is that you really get in there and you can test the attitudes, behaviours, feelings and beliefs on the ground by hearing from people directly. So we all know, we'll all know what the policies say and all these places will have the best policies, I'm sure. But are they lived in practice and has everybody signed up to the values of the school? And I know that schools that have done these, you know, any organisation going into a review is going to have lots of findings and recommendations coming out of it. And I think most schools I know would rather know of any issues and be able to kind of tackle them head on before 
I don't know, maybe complaints come down the line or they fail an inspection or something like that. So there's lots of benefits to doing the culture review where maybe you get an independent in and they test the whole system, really. They're kind of kicking the tires of the whole system. You can do something more scaled back that's more, you know, are we compliant? Are our policies compliant? Um, we'll do some surveys and see what we get back. That's fine too. I'm not knocking that. It's a good starting point. But I've certainly seen how culture reviews have been. They've been a game changer really for a number of schools. And being, I suppose I can imagine that, as, you know, schools can be afraid of what they're going to find out. And I'm sure you would have great sympathy for that, you know, because you're sort of turning over a stone and then maybe you find out 50% of staff members you know, have raised issues, they don't feel comfortable, they feel there's too much banter, if you like, in the staff room that isn't appropriate. What then? Well, I know it could be a bit scary. You think, oh gosh, we're going to embark on this review, we don't really know what's going to come out. But actually, if there is discontent amongst the staff body or, you know, a poor culture, senior leaders and governors should know about that and they should want to understand if that is happening so they can take remedial action, which that looks like, first of all, dealing with any disclosures or allegations that come out in a, in a, a proportionate but robust way, because it's good when people see that things are being tackled. That helps with the culture. But also, that would really come down to, again, your staff training or your redevelopment of the curriculum program around RSE post this Ofsted inquiry and really ensuring that, you know, that plan for training and creating the safe culture is well underway and is working. And I suppose if you felt, if you're a senior leader or a governor sitting there thinking, well, we've done this culture review and, you know, there's a lot of concerns amongst the staff about harassment and that saying there's a poor culture and so on. We've done prior initiatives, which we thought we would work. Well, that's a good opportunity then to assess, well, why didn't the initiatives that you put in place work? What support do we need? Do we need the help of external people to come in and try and set things right for us? And why ultimately all of that is really important it's because if there is a poor culture and people feel maybe that their safety's at risk or they're being bullied or sexually harassed, you know, it has such a damaging impact on the individual, on the school itself in terms of losing talented staff or pupils leaving, things like that, complaints, grievances, tribunal cases, risk, reputational issues. So that's why if you were, you know, sitting listening to this as a governor or a senior leader, you'd think I really need to get in, get into the weeds and know if people feel safe and happy here, both the students and the teachers, as far as that is is possible in this school. And the exciting thing is, you know, for me as a researcher, it's that you can encourage schools to do this research themselves. They don't need to be qualified qualitative researchers. They can ask through surveys, they can have anonymous boxes, they can 
have informal chats, maybe even even involve pupils who are older in a certainly in a secondary school. The sixth formers can do projects and audit pathways to support and look at the whole concept of safety. So this is something everyone can contribute to in a school community, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that all groups, all communities in the school community, so to speak, would have something valuable to contribute from their experiences and their, you know, whatever stage they're at as to what works and what's not working. If you think about the groups that contributed to the Ofsted review that gave them that valuable over look across the sector, and they were able to draw some sector-wide conclusions about what was working in schools and what wasn't working. I mean, that could absolutely be done at the more micro level within a school. Now, you're a lawyer, so Tell us, what is it you wish school leaders knew? You know, when you end up in all these tribunals and everything, what is it that you just think, why didn't they just do this or that? You know, why aren't schools more proactive? If you were in charge of a school, you were a school leader yourself, you've described a very proactive approach, an approach that, you know, is really about preemptive strikes and, and sort of really looking at procedures and pathways to support. What's your sort of best advice? Well, I suppose my best advice is really that prevention is better than cure. And I'm just going to read a quote that I read in the midst of the Me Too movement, when in that era, early 2018, we were grappling with a lot of sexual harassment and sexual violence across different sectors. And the quote was from the then director of the Institute of Business Ethics. And this has stuck with me since then. He said that a good culture liberates and empowers an organization while keeping it safe. The benefits are there for the long term while clearing up the mess will take a lot of time and trouble and if it, if it goes wrong. And I guess, Kathy, to answer your question, it is for me, to anyone listening, about creating that culture where issues are picked up and acted on and people are supported and where it's a safe environment because it does take a lot of time, trouble, effort and expense cleaning up the mess. And the other, I guess, practical thing I would mention on this from based on what I've seen over the years is is for schools to put a good focus on on making sure they know how to carry out good investigations because that's really key got to be fair to everyone involved and you ought to be ensuring you get all of the evidence and reaching the right right results so maria in that regard are there particular procedural and sort of investigative templates that schools should be using is that where a school would use the services of someone like you to advise when they're creating one what what's the best advice there well yeah i mean absolutely we do routinely get contacted by schools to help maybe at the start of an investigation or as one is going on. I guess, Kathy, it comes down to, first of all, schools making sure that they should be the ones investigating and that it shouldn't be the police. And if it should be the police, to be able to push back and, and, and to challenge any decisions which are the school should be investigating something that's quasi-criminal. 
We have lots of resources on our website about carrying out investigations. There's also very good guidance from ACAS on employment investigations. And I suppose if you are in a school running a complex investigation with maybe sexual misconduct at the centre of it, I think that you should consider always appointing an independent investigator who is trained in interviewing children in order to get their best evidence and someone who really understands safeguarding as well. So all of that should hopefully help schools, you know, map a framework for an investigation. And returning to your website, there are just uh, fantastic resources such as the resources explaining the definition, the legal definition of sexual assault, for example. There was a very lovely recent very recent newsletter that you produced on Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. You know, you summarize those issues so clearly. And then just kind of, for me, if I was the head of safeguarding in any school, I would regularly tune into your website to keep abreast of changes in the law, emphasis, you know, stay tuned. I think they're absolutely fantastic reports and some of them are very substantial. So, you know, you have significant, uh, substantial reports on the peer-to-peer abuse. I mean, I've, I've circulated them myself to schools uh, and they are really, really worth checking out. Oh, thank you very much, Kathy. So you mentioned curriculum planning. It just strikes me that, that there are kind of macro level things that school leaders need to be looking at. And then there's a sort of the classroom teacher where we're developing RSE resources, looking curriculum planning. There, there are different things here that each sort of person needs to think about and consider. And I think when it comes to RSHE curriculum planning, you know, again, People, the schools have to be quite careful about the messaging and surely that has to be very evidence-based. Yeah, and well, I guess on curriculum planning, that's where I would defer to the experts really in the, you know, very much in the education sector and possibly also from the world of, you know, sexual violence about, well, how do we teach children about healthy relationships and in an age-appropriate way, personal safety, consent. How do we bring in their parents around issues such as house parties and the conversations that parents just don't seem to be able to have with their children some of the time, or which are, are very difficult and seemingly need to start at a much younger age. So I know that Schools are working with lots of different organizations and relationship and sex education charities to try and improve their curriculum and make it really relevant. And and definitely it's an area that I'm sure and it will be heavily scrutinized by the inspectors. And I would think from a sort of safeguarding governance perspective, governors need to be very much across, well, what, you know, look at these Ofsted findings. What are we doing in this school to make sure that we implement this? What, who do we need to be working with to make sure the curriculum is actually serving the pupils effectively and equipping them for their lives? Maria, you wrote a fantastic, if I can remember where it is, a sort of a template for what Ofsted said and how schools should be potentially responding to it. Where can people source that? Yeah, that's on our website. It's called Everyone's Invited Ofsted Report Analysis and Action Plan. And it's really, I guess, 
Kathy, it's a debrief for, you know, governors or senior leaders who maybe haven't read the Ofsted report in full, or maybe they have, but they need to be, you know, need to have a kind of refresher on it. And Appendix 1 of the briefing note is a table. And I suppose high schools might use this or governors might use this is adding a fifth column saying, you know, what did Ofsted find? What did Ofsted recommend? Comment and actions for schools from Farah's and then their own column of, and what are we doing? That could be something helpful to show the inspectors when they come calling. Absolutely. I thought it was just terrific. And would you advise both primary and secondary schools, prep and senior independent schools to be looking at all of these issues? Or do you just think the emphasis should be in the secondary area sector? I I think that primary need to be, you know, junior schools and primary schools need to be looking at the Ofsted report and considering, you know, their own context and what they should be doing to ensure that children are supported and educated, you know, in an age-appropriate way. And there they would be, I'm sure, you know, in contact with outside professionals from the education centre in developing that RSE curriculum. Absolutely. But I think the Ofsted inquiry probably was you know, largely focused on on the slightly older demographic, but primary schools should not ignore these issues. Now, I've mentioned other issues that you look at within your practice, Maria. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, what's, what's interesting you, what you're writing about that would be relevant to parents or educators. Well, I'm in the safeguarding unit at Farrah's. We're always focused, Cathy, on safeguarding and supporting you know, organisations, schools, sports clubs, churches and and faith-based charities, as well as others, anyone working with children in helping, you know, achieve that safe culture through, you know, support with, you know, new and cutting-edge legal know-how in the policies, working with other academics and experts, helping them all the time with investigations or referrals and the like, and case reviews into maybe something that happened, which should be investigated for, you know, as part of a kind of lessons learned approach in an organization. So I'm, I'm very much focused on sexual harassment, sexual misconduct work. It's, it's an area of interest and investigations. We are very much also exploring right now the area of um, gender questioning and safeguarding transgender children. So another colleague and partner, Katie Fidikowski, is leading most of that research and work. She's been following developments closely from legal cases that have been through the courts in relation to those issues. We, you know, we're we're, we're sort of across the width and breadth of the equality and discrimination issues, Cathy, in terms of race equality um, you mentioned the anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, you know, religious intolerance issues. So we're really looking at all of those areas that would have an impact in schools and in, and in any organisation working with children. 
Well, I love the fact that you are so passionate as I am about accessing research evidence and bringing that to the fore and disseminating it to schools and making it meaningful, you know, in the context of, of law and regulation. You sort of bring it all together very neatly within your law firm. So tell us a little bit again about your website, which I'm always flagging to schools where they can find all these lovely reports. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'm hoping it's relatively user friendly, but we have a safeguarding unit section on the website. There, all schools will find freely available our peer-on-peer abuse toolkit, which you kindly mentioned, our low-level concerns guidance, which has been another major initiative of the safeguarding unit, how to address you know, low-level concerns, low, lower-level behaviours in organisations, creating you know, protocol, model policies and so on. That's all there. Last year, I led an initiative into looking at domestic abuse as an employment law issue, you know, and as a workplace issue, our resources for schools and any employers on that website. I did that really in the context of the pandemic and the terrifying statistics and numbers and stories we were hearing because of about domestic abuse from the triggered by, you know, the lockdown and so on. And listeners can meet the whole team on the website as well if they want to go in and have a look at our bios. And so many of your colleagues' work areas just seem absolutely fascinating. So, uh, yeah, there's so much to read. I, I go to that website regularly and I'm just I'm just loving the updates. And it's so fresh and yeah, all these topics are so interesting and you can help us make sense of them. And uh, I think for, for, you know, a lot of members of staff and governors in schools are very, very busy and having those helpful updates and knowing there are people out there like you, you can pick up the phone to and ask for advice. And I'm sure people are often maybe afraid they don't understand, you know, they could just pick up the phone to a lawyer, but you offer that service. You can give advice, you can talk things through, you can help them make sense of what's going on in their school environment and how to, you know, move things forward. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely, Kathy. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much for giving up your valuable time today. And we will certainly be signposting our school communities within Tooled Up Education to all of your fantastically useful reports. And thank you for all the work that you've done. Thank you, Kathy. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.